0: Then he showed me the high priest Joshua standing before the angel of the Lord, with Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. May the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Isn't this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Now Joshua was dressed with filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. So the angel of the Lord spoke to those standing before him, Take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to him, See, I have removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with festive robes. Then I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So a clean turban was placed on his head, and they clothed him in garments while the angel of the Lord was standing nearby. Then the angel of the Lord charged Joshua, This is what the Lord of armies says. If you walk in my ways and keep my mandates, you will both rule my house and take care of my courts. I will also grant you access among these who are standing here. Listen, High Priest Joshua, you and your colleagues sitting before you. Indeed, these men are a sign that I am about to bring my servant, the branch. Notice the stone I have set before Joshua. On that one stone are seven eyes. I will engrave an inscription on it. This is the declaration of the Lord of Armies, and I will take away the iniquity of this land in a single day. On that day, each of you will invite his neighbor to sit under his vine and fig tree. This is the declaration of the Lord of Armies. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we come now to you humbly, knowing that we are sinners before a holy God. And yet we also come boldly because Christ is our mediator, our great high priest, and he's given us access to your throne. And so we ask now that you would guard us from the evil one, that you would convict us by your spirit, that you would sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. We ask that you would do this for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Is it not wonderful news to believe that salvation lies outside of ourselves. So wrote Martin Luther after he struggled long over the question of how many good works were enough to merit heaven and achieve God's forgiveness. Luther had it right. The gospel is that Jesus Christ has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. We gather this morning and every Sunday to rejoice in the work that Christ has done and rest anew in his salvation. And yet, from Luther's day and still today, indeed for all of history, the great enemy of the church has stood to accuse God's people and to poison the truth. He conspires to paralyze believers with guilt. He wants our consciences condemned for disobeying the word of our Lord. He tempts us to despair by reminding us that we are stained by sin. And therefore, the great problem for every Christian, indeed for every person, is our guilt it's our sin whether we recognize it or not we all have this guilt and we can respond several ways will we despair over our sin and our failure will we rely on our own works to be right with God or will we receive a gift of grace that gives us a place to stand before the Lord well we find the wonderful answer in our passage this morning. Zechariah would say to Christians who have ongoing feelings of guilt that stop them from serving the Lord, you are listening to the accusation of Satan rather than to the voice of God. God does not trivialize sin or say that sin does not matter, but as horrific as any sin may be, God has dealt with it in the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus The greatest weapon against Satan is the assurance that the punishment for our sin has been put on Christ, and his righteousness has been credited to us. Whatever accusation Satan can bring has been silenced for those who trust in Jesus. That's really the main point that I want us to see today, that the only remedy for real guilt is real forgiveness through a real imputation. If you don't know what that last word means, we'll explain it as we go. But I want us to look at this passage in three scenes. The setting, the symbol, and the servant. So first, the setting. Look at verse 1. Then he showed me the high priest Joshua standing before the angel of the Lord, with Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. So we have three figures in the courtroom. You have Joshua standing as the defendant on trial. you got the angel of the Lord presiding as the judge, And then you have Satan, acting as the prosecutor. Now this Joshua is not the Joshua that fought the battle of Jericho. That Joshua lived in the early 14th century BC. This is after Israel's return from the exile in 519 BC. And this Joshua is the high priest leading God's people in restoring the temple along with Zerubbabel, the governor whom we'll meet in chapter four. Now Joshua has already faced human adversaries who rose up to oppose the work. We read about this in the book of Ezra. They discouraged the people, frustrated their efforts, even wrote nasty accusations against them, and the people had stopped building for 15 years, and it seemed like the work was over. But then God raised up the prophets Haggai and Zechariah. They preached God's word to the people. They supported the leaders, and Joshua and Zerubbabel led the people to rebuild the temple once again. But now we see the adversary rise up to bring his own accusations, to discourage Joshua, in his work, Now, Satan is a title that means the adversary or the accuser. The accuser is his name. Accusation is his game. This is who he's been. This is what he's done ever since he rebelled against God in heaven. Now, regrettably, popular culture tends to trivialize this adversary, doesn't it? Often he's depicted as a character with horns and a tail. Sometimes the media portray him as an adversary who is very easily overcome by men. However, this is not how we find Satan depicted in the scriptures. Revelation 12, which we just read, says he's the ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the one who deceives the whole world. He's the accuser of our brothers and sisters. He accuses them before our God day and night. It's just this image of relentless accusation. Satan is crafty. To the innocent, he tempts them to sin. That's what he did with the first Adam who failed and the last Adam, who succeeded. To the guilty, he accuses them of their sin, right? So Satan will try to get people to sin, and then when we sin, he heaps accusations against us. And this shows the deceitfulness of his schemes. He's a liar, a deceiver, and a true adversary of God's people. Satan is strategic, right? He's not omnipresent, and so he sets his sights on key people. He deceived Eve in an effort to destroy Adam. He ravaged Job. He incited David. He demanded to have Peter. He tormented Paul. He tempted Christ. And here we see he goes after Joshua, the high priest. Now Israel, you recall from the book of Exodus, was supposed to be a holy nation and a kingdom of priests. And these two phrases complement each other, right? A nation is like a kingdom... And priests were the holy men of Israel. And so both the people and the priests were set apart. They were devoted to the Lord for his special purposes. And the priests had a special job from the Lord, right? They could could handle the holy things. They wore special clothes. They could enter into the holy places. They offered sacrifices on behalf of the people so their sins could be forgiven. But the problem, right, was that the priests were sinful too, right? The holy men were not truly sinful holy. And so as the high priest, Joshua represented God's people. If he's holy to God, then the people are holy to God. But if Joshua is guilty, then the whole nation is guilty. If he stands condemned, all the people stand condemned. Well, does Satan have a case? Verse 3 says that he does. Now Joshua was dressed with filthy clothes As he stood before the angel. The word filthy here means something like excrement or vomit. One of my children's Bibles said it was like he was wearing a dirty diaper. It's a disgusting picture. What disqualifies Joshua is not his clothes, but his sin, which the clothes represent. Joshua is a dirty, guilty sinner. He looked filthy because he had been filthy, because he was filthy all his righteous deeds were like filthy rags before the lord so he had no right to stand before god much less make atonement for the people i wonder if you see yourself this way we are so prone to regard our sins so lightly to gloss over its hideousness to make excuses for it but the more we study and ponder god's perfect holiness his radiant purity his abhorrence of sin and his frightful wrath against it, the more we will realize sin's heinousness. This is a word from the Lord revealing our true condition. In ourselves, we are stained by sin. We're covered in it. And our sin should make us sick. Christ is never loved until our sin is loathed. Heaven is never longed for until our sin is loathed. Oh, that our consciences would be aggravated by our sin and our guilt. That we would cry out, When shall I put off these filthy garments of sin? And have the pure robes of Christ clothed around my back, the crown of glory set upon my head. Do you see your sin that way, in need of that kind of remedy? And so we can imagine what Satan's accusations would be, right? Look at this man see his sin, how unworthy, how unfit, how unclean, how unrighteous. The case is clear. Joshua is guilty. Joshua stands condemned. And Satan was ready to go to work. Again, we're not told what his accusations would have been, but Thomas Brooks, in his good book, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices, he he helps us imagine... How Satan would proceed if he were to speak. And I'm going to draw from him. He would accuse Joshua of the greatness and the vileness of his sins. What? Do you think you will ever obtain mercy that has sinned with so high a hand against the Lord? That has slighted the offers of grace? That has grieved the spirit of grace? That has despised the word of grace? that has trampled under feet the blood of the covenant by which you might have been pardoned, cleansed, justified, and saved, that has spoken and done all the evil that you have? No, no, says Satan. God has mercy for others, but not for you. Pardon for others, but not for you. Righteousness for others, but not for you. Therefore, it is in vain for you to think of believing in, or resting your guilty soul upon his promised Messiah. He would accuse Joshua of his unworthiness. Ah, says Satan, as you are worthy of the greatest misery, so you are unworthy of the least crumb of mercy. What? Do you think that the Lord will own, receive, or embrace such an unworthy wretch as you? No, no, if there were any worthiness in you, then indeed the Lord might be willing to be entertained by you. But you are unworthy to entertain the Lord into your house. How much more unworthy are you to entertain him into your heart? And then after leveling Joshua with his accusations, Satan would keep his soul in a sad, doubting, and questioning condition. He would cause him to pore over and muse upon his sin, to mind his sins more than the promised Savior. Indeed, so to mind his sins as to forget and neglect the Savior altogether. You see, Satan wants our eyes so fixed upon our disease that we cannot see the remedy. Our minds so fixed upon our debts that we have neither mind nor heart to think of our surety. So friends, the greatest problem we face is not Satan, but it's our own sin. Right? Because what disqualified Joshua also disqualifies us. We have no basis for standing in God's presence. We all stand condemned. We're all unworthy we're all unfit for heaven. And do you feel the weight of your condition? Maybe you're here this morning and you don't think that one day you'll stand before God and give an account for your life. But the scripture is clear. We all have a divine judge. Now, all of us stand before the bench with a record of wrongs. A history of treason and rebellion against our creator. So we can do nothing To make a case for ourselves, we have no defense. What then can be done for us? God himself must advocate for us. Left to ourselves, we are no match for the devil. However, this is not true of God Almighty. No matter how strong the devil may be, he is still only a creature. Christianity does not teach a dualism where God and the devil are equal in power and strength. No, the devil is subservient to the will of our Father in heaven. And here, the Lord shuts him up before he even says a word. Look at verse 2. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. May the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Isn't this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? So immediately, the Lord rebukes Satan. Not once, but twice as though the Lord says, you're out of order, Satan. Shut your mouth. The judge of all the earth speaks in Joshua's defense, and he does for us. The only one who can condemn us rebukes the devil's prosecutions against us. The Lord won't hear another word about it. He silences the prosecutor. Satan won't be speaking in this courtroom. And the Lord gives two reasons why Satan must hush. First, the Lord has chosen Jerusalem. So the Lord defends his people because he's chosen them. He chose Israel knowing full well that Israel was unrighteous. And yet he chose them and set his favor upon them. Spurgeon said, Satan tells me I am unworthy. Yet I always was unworthy. Yet God has long loved me. Second, Joshua has been snatched from the fire. There's an allusion here to Amos 4.11. Which says, I overthrew some of you as I overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were like a burning stick snatched from a fire, yet you did not return to me. But unlike their fathers who didn't return, Joshua and the new generation, they had returned to God, right? We saw that at the beginning of chapter 1. The fire of the exile had brought forth the fruit of repentance. And the Lord states this as a rhetorical question, which suggests, this should have been plain evidence to Satan, right? You've got evidence of his sin, Satan, but I've got evidence of his repentance, which you have conveniently ignored. But notice that snatched is a passive participle, right? This salvation was a gift of God, Joshua did not pluck himself from the fire. No, he is plucked, snatched by God. His salvation is by grace alone. And so God chose him. God snatched him from the fire. He was this burning stick about to be consumed. And the Lord mercifully snatched him away. And church, we also have been mercifully snatched away from the fire of eternal hell. Why did the Lord save us? It's not because of our righteousness. We deserved hell. No, it's because of his gracious, gracious choice. His election. God chose us to be saved. He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world not to damn us to hell but to pour out the riches of his grace to us for our everlasting enjoyment of him. And it's on this ground, this gracious choice, that he rules any charge against us out of order. Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? It is God who justifies. I want us to draw out four applications for our lives, four C's. First, confess your sins often and repent of them. You know, in confession, we agree with God about our sin. Confession is, in a sense, self-accusing. But it's for the purpose of cleansing, not condemnation. Right? Our, our confession doesn't cleanse us. Only Jesus can do that. Only the work of Jesus Christ can do that but confession is our coming clean about our sin. John wrote, If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thomas Watson counsels, By this self-accusing, we prevent Satan's accusing. In our confessions, we tax ourselves with pride, infidelity, passion, So that when Satan shall lay these things to our charge, God will say, they have accused accused themselves already. Therefore, Satan, you are non-suited. Your accusations come too late. Confess your sins often and repent of them. Second, come to Christ for continual assurance. Brothers and sisters, have you slipped into thinking that you're not good enough to be forgiven? Are you crushed with despair because you feel defeated by besetting sin. Your conscience may be weighed down by real guilt, in which case part of the remedy is repentance. Right? You must confess your sins and turn from them and seek forgiveness. But perhaps you've allowed the accuser to beat you down by forgetting God's grace. And if so, remember 1 John 2, verse 1. My little children, I am writing you these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. Christ's grace is mightier than our guilt. I love the counsel Luther gives. When the devil throws our sins up to us and declares that we deserve death and hell, we ought to speak this. I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? Does this mean that I shall be sentenced to eternal damnation? By no means. For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction in my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Where he is, there I shall be also. Third, cease all pretending and defending. We don't have to pretend that we are righteous in and of ourselves. We know we are guilty. The verdict is the cross. And so we can stop pretending like we are without sin. But we also don't have to defend ourselves against loving confrontation. Now, How often do we activate our inner lawyer when we are confronted with our sin? When a friend or spouse or pastor observes sin in you and lovingly confronts you about it, do you get defensive? Do you become your own attorney, refuting the faithful wounds of a friend, and dismissing them as out of order, all the while establishing your own righteousness. Brothers and sisters, we can be free of that. We can be free of that. I'm not suggesting every confrontation received from others is true and loving. Sometimes people join Satan in the work of accusation. I am saying that in everything, that the Lord is our one sure defense. Fourth, cherish the intercession of Christ for you. Romans 8:34 Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He also is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. When Jesus ascended into heaven, he sat down at the right hand of the Father at that place of power and role, and he uses that authority and that power to intercede for us, to pray for his people, to plead for our case before the Father. The accuser is no match for the advocate. Jesus bends all of his power and clout for our good. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Octavius Winslow said, The voice of Jesus' blood pleads louder for you in heaven than all your sins can plead against you on earth. So we've seen the setting. And now that brings us to scene number two, the symbol. God has rebuked Satan, but Joshua still remains a filthy sinner. So has the Lord declared Joshua righteous when he is in fact unrighteous? Has this court proceeding been an obstruction of justice? What kind of judge is this? Well, the Lord's solution is not to deny Joshua's sin, but to deal with it. And any trace of truth in Satan's accusations will be done away with once and for all. And this resolution comes; uh, in, it involves a, a cleansing, a clothing, and a charge. The cleansing, look at verse 4. So the angel of the Lord spoke to those standing before him, Take off his filthy clothes. And so the the angel directs the other angels in the heavenly court to serve as uh, the Lord's tailors. They take off Joshua's clothes. This reminds us of Nathan's words to David, The Lord has taken away your sin. This, This removal of the dirty clothing, it symbolizes God's forgiveness of sins. Joshua's forgiven of all wrongdoing. He's cleansed of all unrighteousness. He's no longer guilty in God's court, but stands fully acquitted. Any record of wrongs has been wiped clean from his judicial transcript. It is just as if he has never sinned. Now I ask you, what did Joshua do to become clean? Nothing. (laughs) The cleansing was initiated by God. Carried out by God, completed by God alone. This is no self-help effort. Joshua's not making himself clean. The Lord cleans him up. This is not human merit, this is divine grace. Forgiveness of sins is granted by God alone. Friends, we cannot forgive ourselves. No matter how much popular spirituality says we can. Right? Have you heard this? You just need to forgive yourself. You can't do that. This idea that in order for someone to truly deal with the guilt of the past, they must forgive themselves is foreign to biblical truth. We can forgive others. We can ask for forgiveness from the Lord and from others. But nowhere in Scripture are we instructed to forgive ourselves. Forgiveness can only be granted by the offended party. The offender cannot pardon himself. We cannot remove our sins. Only God can wash away our guilty stains. Matthew Henry says, Christ loathed the filthiness of Joshua's garments, yet did not put him away, but put them away. And thus God by his grace does with those whom he chooses to be priests to himself. He parts between them and their sins, and so prevents their sins parting between them and their God. He reconciles himself to the sinner, but not to the sin. God accepts us not because we're deserving, but because Christ, his perfect son is. And this is our only hope in this world and the next. That's the cleansing, but then we see the clothing. Right? Verse 4 shows the removal of the dirty clothes, but it also shows the addition of clean ones. Look at the, from the end of verse 4. Then he said to them, See, I have removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with festive robes. Then I said, this is Zechariah speaking now, let them put a clean turban on his head. So a clean turban was placed on his head, and they clothed him in garments while the angel of the Lord was standing nearby. Why does Joshua need new clothes? Well, he's naked now, right? But think about it legally. Is it not enough that his filthy garments are removed, right? If Joshua's sins have been totally forgiven... And he's now completely innocent in God's sight. Why does he need new robes? Please get this. It is not enough for us to be stripped of our sin and remain naked before God. We might be innocent of any wrongdoing, forgiven, but we would not be righteous in the positive sense. A neutral nakedness would not suffice. Right? We will still cry out with that old hymn, Naked come to thee for dress. Forgiveness of sins is part of our right standing with God, but it is only part. We need something more. We need what Augustus Toplady called the double cure. We need to be clothed with the righteousness of another. We need what Luther called an alien righteousness. Our righteousness is this outside of us. Because Joshua's clothes and ours were dirty. But the Lord gave him the clean robes of another. Right Now it is just as if he has always obeyed. So the righteousness by which God declares us righteous is not an inherent righteousness. It is an imputed righteousness. Something that does not originate from within, but is credited to our account, given to us at the orders of the judge as a gift. And now we can sing, I rejoice... Greatly in the Lord I exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation and wrapped me in a robe of righteousness. Now, our Roman Catholic friends call this a legal fiction. To say that we are just when we're really not just is a blemish on the character of God. Proverbs 17:15 says, acquitting the guilty... And condemning the just, both are detestable to the Lord. So if this were fake, if this were a legal fiction, God would be an unjust judge. He'd be a liar. And worse than Satan, who's at least telling the truth about our guilt. And we ought to impeach God, right? Throw him off the bench of the universe. Never let him back into the heavenly courtroom for such an egregious breach of justice. So, if this were all an illusion, a judicial sleight of hand, and Joshua truly remained clothed in filthy garments and guilty, then Rome would be right. But the point of the gospel is that the imputation is real. God really laid my sins on Christ, and He really gives to me His perfect righteousness. This isn't a sham. God is just and the justifier. Of the one who has faith in Jesus we have here in in Joshua a symbol of the doctrine of justification we are declared righteous in the sight of God by means of the robe of Christ's righteousness because without his righteousness all we have to offer God are filthy rags Lord if you kept an account of iniquities Lord who could stand but there is now no Condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Now we enjoy freedom from any accusation of Satan because we have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb. We don't have to earn our righteousness because Christ is our pardon and our perfection. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Thomas Gill captured the wonder of this double exchange. Our load of sin and misery didst thou the sinless bear. Thy spotless robe of purity do we the sinners wear. How can an unjust person be justified? How can a dirty rebel be declared righteous? The only remedy to real guilt is real forgiveness through a real imputation. I rest solely in Christ's righteousness, and in His atoning death for my sins, because I know there's nothing I can do to make up for my iniquity. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. In verse 5, Zechariah, watching the scene unfold, interjects with a command of his own, let them put a clean turban on his head, The turban was a headdress that formed part of the priestly garb in Exodus 28. Signifies the reinstatement of Joshua to his priestly office. This is the crowning moment of the whole ceremony. Joshua is reclothed in pure festival garments in the presence of the angel of the Lord. A symbol that God accepts him again. And the people that he represented. And now having been cleansed and clothed, Joshua receives... A charge look at verse 6 then the angel of the Lord charged Joshua this is what the Lord of armies says if you walk in my ways and keep my mandates you will both rule my house and take care of my courts I will also grant you access among these who are standing here so this this first condition walk in my ways is to live life as God intends you know, right, Walk is a biblical metaphor for an obedient lifestyle. The second condition, keep my mandates, means to align one's conduct with God's commands. And so together, these conditions are calling for covenant faithfulness. The angel saying, the Lord has made you clean, right? All on his own. These new clothes aren't yours, but God gave them to you. Now he wants you to live like you look. No more dirty ways. No more disobedience. It's time to do things God's way. The third phrase, it's promises now, you will rule my house, refers to the temple. Right? In the absence of a king during this time, the, the priest played an important role in the covenant community. And that fourth phrase, take care of my courts, is, is a parallel of sorts. So together, these promises are conveying, those priestly duties are reinstituted to Joshua. And so he's charged to walk in obedience, fulfill his role as a high priest, and then he's also promised that if he does so, he'll receive the right of access to God's presence. Joshua will walk among the host of heaven. And so the Lord is keeping his promise, return to me, and I will return to you. Church, we too have been charged to walk worthy of the gospel, to walk As children of light to walk according to the spirit we're to love god and keep his commandments and the reward for our faithful covenant keeping until the end will be the presence of god will be with him where he is to see his glory in the face of jesus christ now note the sequence here right first he is cleansed then he is clothed then is charged. This order matters. In a covenant relationship with God, there are commands to be obeyed. There are obligations to be fulfilled. But these are always surrounded and supported by God's gracious acts and his mighty promises. In other words, what I'm saying is this is grace-motivated obedience. This is not legalism. Joshua doesn't have to earn right standing with God by keeping commands. Nor is this lawlessness. Obedience is really required of him. No, this is true liberty. God not only cleanses and clothes us, but he also commissions us. He not only saves us, but then he gives us a place of service. And that fitness for service is grounded not in our own works, but in God's free gift of salvation. But the salvation always results in service. What a privilege to serve the lord and that brings us to our final scene the servant joshua has been justified restored as the high priest god is pouring out his blessings on his people and yet as great as these blessings are there remains a greater salvation to come in verses 8 through 10 we see that joshua and his fellow priests symbolize the coming servant I want us to see three glorious attributes of this servant. First, his identity. Who is this person? Look at verse 8. Listen, high priest Joshua, you and your colleagues sitting before you. Indeed, these men are a sign that I am about to bring my servant, the branch. You know, perhaps this allusion to the servant, Isaiah 53. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will carry their iniquities. And so this coming servant is going to provide that double cure of forgiveness of sins and gift of righteousness. And the servant will also take on the role of a priest. You see that in that great chapter of Isaiah 53, right? He, He presents himself as an offering for sin. He bears their iniquities. He makes intercession For the transgressors, he does what a priest does. And so that coming, suffering servant will be a priest like Joshua. Note the second word, the the branch. The prophet Jeremiah prophesied that a righteous king called the branch would come from David's family. Listen to Jeremiah 23, verses 5 through 6. Look, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration. When I will raise up a righteous branch for David, he will reign wisely as king. And administer justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. This is the name he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. God had promised that David would never lack a man on his throne. But one of his sons would occupy it forever. And now we see that this suffering servant of Isaiah 53 is also the righteous Davidic King of Jeremiah 23. And what is more, he will be called by the name the Lord Yahweh. Somehow, some way, this man will not only be a son of David, but also a son of God. And from the fullness of revelation given in the New Testament, we know this suffering servant and righteous king is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the servant who was obedient even to the point of death on a cross. He is the righteous branch who will make many to be accounted righteous. He is the high priest who was faithful in all of God's house as a son. And this leads to the second attribute of the coming servant, his iniquity-removing work. Look at verse 9. Notice the stone I have set before Joshua. On that one stone are seven eyes. I will engrave an inscription on it. This is a declaration of the Lord of Armies. And I will take away the iniquity of this land in a single day. What's significant here is not the stone, but the promise inscribed on it. No longer would daily sacrifices be offered for the forgiveness of sins. No longer would Joshua, as the high priest, enter the most holy place on the day of atonement each year. Instead, there would come a single day, when God would remove the iniquity of the land in full. There would come a greater day of atonement, Good Friday, when the true great high priest would make atonement for his people through his death on the cross. This would be the day when the promised king would disarm Satan and all of his accusations, and put him to open shame by triumphing over him. This would be the day when he would remove the guilty stains of his people, cancel the record of debt that stood against them, clothe them in righteousness divine, grant them access to the presence of God, and open for them the way to paradise. This day would be the greatest day God's people or the world had ever seen. And beloved, that day has come. Jesus accomplished the promised redemption. He has appeared one time at the end of the ages for the removal of sin by the sacrifice of himself. Full atonement, can it be? Hallelujah, what a savior. Why is it good news that our sins are forgiven and we're clothed with the righteousness of Christ? It's because now all of the obstacles that hindered us from fellowship with God have been removed forever. God the Son took our sin to reconcile us and restore us back to the Father. Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. So we've seen the servant's identity, his iniquity removing work, and now look at the servant's inviting people. Verse 10, on that day, each of you will invite his neighbor to sit under his vine and fig tree. This is the declaration of the Lord of Armies. The prophets look back to past glories to describe future greater glories. Right? They start with the known and then they move to the unknown. And So this refers to the reign of Solomon, 1 Kings 4. When Solomon had dominion over everything west of the Euphrates, Peace on all of the surrounding borders. Judah and Israel lived in safety, it says. Each person under his own vine and his own fig tree. These were the good old days. But this coming day will not simply be a reversion to the past. The picture here is one of perfect peace, abundant life, a new creation that Jesus will bring about. And everyone in the new community will do the work of an evangelist. No exceptions. Each of you will invite his neighbor. Because the blessings of living under King Jesus are too good to not tell of his love. Church, this is our charter. right? Like Joshua, we also live in a time of expectation. We still eagerly await a new heavens and a new earth. When life under King Jesus is in full effect we have not yet reached paradise and until then we get to invite people to come under the blessed rule and reign of the Lord Jesus as those who have been snatched from the fire so we must also as jude says snatch others save others by snatching them out of the fire but we don't just warn people out of heaven uh, out of hell we woo them into heaven to paradise So are you inviting people to Jesus? Good news is meant to be shared. Ironically, this is an area where Satan loves to accuse us, doesn't he? But don't let him. But don't confuse the conviction of the Spirit for the condemnation of Satan. Because when we sin, both the devil and the Holy Spirit come to us. The devil accuses us in order to paralyze our growth, to hinder our service. But the Spirit convicts us and he brings grace to restore us and to renew our fellowship with God. Remember, Satan is silenced so that we may speak boldly of our Savior. So invite your neighbor to come to Jesus who loved us and gave himself for us. You know, for some of you here this morning, maybe this is the first time that you've heard this message. Perhaps you feel incurable, that there's no hope for you. You're too bad too broken for God to heal and restore. But friend, there is no sinner too dirty that Christ cannot clean. Turn away from your sin. Stop trusting in your own works. Be free from the condemnation and accusations of the devil. And trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because you see, ultimately, our justification, our right standing with God is by works. The question is, whose works? If you are not trusting in Christ this morning, I invite, I invite you. I beg you, exchange your filthy rags for the robe of righteousness of Jesus Christ. Don't put it off. Today, you can be forgiven of all your sins and clothed with the righteousness of Christ. God doesn't need your best, and your words works need not speak for you, because Christ's blood speaks a better word. If you receive him now, you will have a peace that surpasses all understanding. The wrath of God will never reach you. The justice of God will never condemn you. But the grace of God will defend you. The mercy of God will restore you. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be a righteous child of God. There is nothing more important in all the world. In 15... Ten, Martin Luther was sent to Rome where he climbed the Holy Stairs, supposedly the same stairs that Jesus ascended before he appeared to Pilate. And according to fables, the stairs had been moved from Jerusalem to Rome. And the priests claimed that God forgave sins for those who climbed the stairs on their knees. And so Luther did so, repeating the Lord's Prayer, kissing each step as he went up, seeking peace with God. But when he reached the top, he looked back, and he said, who knows whether this is true? Luther eventually learned it's not true. It's not good news. This is the good news. Jesus lived a righteous life. Jesus died for my sins. Jesus rose from the dead and ascended to the Father. lord of all and so now i despair of my own righteousness i turn away from my sin i trust in christ and christ alone and the very instant i do that all that jesus is and all that he has is mine and for the rest of my days he has me covered The Father looks beyond all my filthy garments and all my sin. And he sees the robe of the righteousness of Christ. And for that reason, I am declared righteous not for the day, not for this week, not until I commit another sin, but for eternity. Is there any better news in all the world than that? At the front door of the church, the enemy stands to accuse you as you enter and whisper in your ears, you've got to make sure that you are righteous your merits count it's got to be an inherent righteousness when you hear the accuser rebuke him with the words of the lord the lord rebuke you Satan. tell him the lord has chosen me he has saved me from hell and i will not be joining you there I stand before him, clothed with the righteousness of Christ, and all my sins are under his blood. Even now, my Savior stands before the Father, pleading his precious blood for me. By his one, final, and perfect sacrifice, I have been put beyond the power of your accusations, and of God's own wrath against me forever. That's what you tell him. My sins received the double cure, Christ saved from wrath, and made me pure. Let's pray together. Father in Heaven, it is true, the only remedy to real guilt is real forgiveness through a real imputation. We have sinned against you much, but your Son is our righteousness and our redemption. He undertook to answer for our sins, and we know you are fully satisfied with his work. And it's our prayer that when he comes with trumpet sound, oh, may we then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. May that be true for everyone today. May we trust in Jesus now and forever. It's in his name we pray. Amen.